Welcome to the 17th episode of the Cranky Flyer interview. Oh, I've got a good one for you today. My guest is Patrick Quayle, Vice President, International Network and Alliances for United Airlines. We talked about all things international at a time when, well, when it's hurting the most. You might actually be surprised to hear him sounding as bullish as he is. But first, big news. I'm proud to announce there is a real sponsor for this and the next few episodes of the Cranky Flyer interview. Thank you to Ontario International Airport, ONT, right here in Southern California. ONT's been busy over the last couple of months. Passengers may have stayed home, but boxes did not. Cargo tonnage has seen a 24% increase year over year. Meanwhile, in the terminals, Ontario's been working on making for a clean and easy experience for all guests when they return. Ontario is the first airport in the nation to install UVC light self-cleaning technology on escalators. It has also installed PPE vending machines for those who forget to bring their own gear. Overall, there's increased cleaning and disinfecting in all areas of the airport with a focus on high-touch spots. Now that Ontario is seeing passenger throughput rise at a faster clip than the national TSA CBP numbers, it's a good time to remind travelers that masks must be worn at all times at ONT and floor markers have been added to help people maintain social distancing. For more, visit flyontario.com slash COVID-19. And now, it's time to talk shop with Patrick. What I actually want to start with is, I guess I assume this was in March, um, you know, after China had already gone off the rails, but when the rest of the world basically stopped traveling from a, a U.S. perspective, um, so how did, how did you identify what was going on and, and then how did you attack this problem? Cause I don't think we've ever seen anything like this before. Yeah. So first, Brett, thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me to join. I'm really excited to talk to you and, uh, talk to everyone on Frankie Flyer. So look in by early March, uh, things were unraveling pretty quickly. And, and by that point we'd already gotten past what was happening in China, um, and, you know, quite candidly, we started noticing real demand drops in, in the Atlantic region in late February. Um, so early March, you know, if you think about it, New York was declared a state of emergency. San Francisco had already been declared a state of emergency. Two places where we have very big, important hubs, right? Um, and, you know, by March 10, Scott is presenting at the J.P. Morgan conference, just to kind of set your your timeline in, in, in your, your head. Sure. Um, and, you know, Scott presented and we filed an 8K saying that, you know, demand or, or we were planning 10% cut in April uh, domestic capacity, a 20% cut in international capacity, and we were looking at further cuts. And by March, uh, call it March 17th, so a week later, um, we had gone down to um, 95% reduction in international capacity and a 70% reduction in domestic capacity. Um, and so I just I want to focus on that for one second because really in a matter of one week we massively changed our network and our schedule um, to reduce capacity based off of a precipitous fall in demand. I mean, look, look based on TSA data um, and and based on employments, I mean we were I think demand fell something in like ninety percent ninety nine percent fall in demand and we were running a thirteen percent load factor. Um, and so we quickly moved to pull capacity. But how do you make that decision to pull capacity for, I mean, I don't, I don't remember how far out you pulled capacity at that point, but, um, 
you know, how do you make that decision that, you know, this is not a one or two week thing. This is going to be a longer term issue and we just need to pull stuff down. Right. So look, that the numbers I'm talking about, we did that in, um, we made those changes in, in March, right, for the April schedule. Um, but the big difference here is we were really, really flexible. It goes back to, um, if you think about, you know, we've been at United the last three years, um, and what we've been able to do um, is build people, build processes, and build technology. And that has enabled us, and that did enable us, to basically build four or five different schedules um, in March that we could play in April, and then we rebid the crew. Because on a normal timeline, the crew's already bid, the schedule's already sold. I mean, the schedule has been sold, right? right. Um, and so we quickly, we, we came up with four different scenarios, and this quickly went to beyond our worst imagination, um, with, hence, the, hence the massive pull-down. So, we, we, look, the reason we knew this wasn't going to just be a two-week thing and then come back um, was what we started seeing in late January with China. Um, and we started seeing the fall off. And, and Brett, you know, I've, I've been in this business uh, since like 2004, 2005, and I've never seen anything like this in my career. I mean, normally when you look at demand and when you look at changes in passengers, you're looking at one or two points and you're getting excited about this, right? And we're talking about a fall off of, of 97%. Um, and, and so that's how you know this is not going to be a short-term thing. But if you look at the way we've built our schedules internationally and domestically, we've done it in a way – that we can be flexible. So for, for example, we're having this conversation beginning of June. You know, if you look at our domestic schedule for August, the whole schedule is selling, right? And we just finalized the July schedule and pushed that out for domestic international. So we are, we are going month by month to see how demand covers and the key is remaining flexible. Yeah. And so international in particular is still looking pretty grim. Uh, I think you and every other airline you've brought domestic back, uh, more so than international, and that's been the case pretty much across the board. Uh, but what are you seeing now? Are, are you seeing anything encouraging from an international perspective? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Look, I think you have to put this in context. Um, so if you if you think about it, you know, for United Airlines, we have roughly are roughly um, 300 daily departures for international, right? So just to put it in context. So normal, healthy airline, we're 300 international departures a day. In April, we cut that back to 10. I mean, Brett, you could count the vast United Airlines network on each of your hands, um, and that was that was six wide bodies and four flights a day to Mexico. Um, and so if you look at our July schedule, we're going to have 58 international departures. And so you can feel good that that's six times larger, and you should feel good that that's six times larger, but it's still only 20% of roughly what our July normally would be. Um, so there is little green shoots, and, and we're, seeing, we're seeing some demand, um, and, and that's why we've doubled our July international schedule versus June. Um, so it's six times larger than April, and it's double that of, of, of June. And so those are good, but again, it's still very, very small. Um, look, we're seeing we're seeing demand on um, a lot of double connects or bridge traffic. So, for example, if you're in Buffalo, New York, um, you know, we're, and you want to get to Budapest or Nice, France, or something like that. In the past, you know, you were well, maybe Buffalo or, or Budapest is a bad example, but um, Nice is a better example, or Naples. You know, you could fly Buffalo and then into one of our hubs, and then from there, in this case, Newark, um, into into Nice or uh, Naples. But now we're seeing traffic going, you know, Buffalo, Dulles, Frankfurt, Nice. 
Um, and so that's the type of thing we're seeing is a lot of people want to travel. There's pent-up demand. But keep in mind, a lot of the borders around the world are closed. And so people are having to connect in our hubs and in our partner hubs, and that's how we're, we're accessing the globe. And that's one of the biggest problems right now, I think, for people who are looking to book travel is just knowing, will I actually be able to get there or not? Uh, so from what you're seeing, is there a, a certain time period where people uh, for travel are starting to, you know, are, are people starting to book more further out and are seeing something that is a, a date in the future where they think, well, this is probably safe or are you not really seeing any sort of cliff like that? No, look, I can't give you a specific date as to when, when there's a lot of bookings, but I can tell you this. Every morning at 5, 5.30 in the morning, um, we send out a booking report, right? The company sends it out. And it's the first thing I read when I wake up. Um, and what we've seen is this week we're seeing positive bookings. We're seeing gross positive bookings. We're seeing net positive bookings. And I think there's a lot of pent-up demand out there. Um, and so we're still well below 2019 levels of what, you know, what type of bookings we're talking about, but we are seeing great demand for the future. And I think, I think people are feeling better and better about maybe the fall or the winter. And that's where we're seeing a lot more tickets being sold. But I can tell you the flights that we're flying right now, Brett, are, are doing well. And a lot of that has to do with cargo. And a lot of that has to do with we're flying into our partners hubs. Um, and we're doing, you know, some of these strategic flights and they're doing quite well. Cargo is an interesting topic here. I know you're running a bunch of these flights in these uh, 2,000 flight number range. Is that all cargo or is that also just unscheduled charter stuff as well? Or It's both. So it, it's both. That's, that's, that's right. So we're doing a lot of cargo work um, and that's been fantastic because it's, been, it's, it's allowed us to, you know, continue to keep our pilots um, and our mechanics and, and our employees working these flights and it brings in important revenue for the company. And then we're also doing a lot of repatriation flights. I think, uh, you know, we've, we've repatriated more than like 40,000 um, Americans back home. Um, and by operating flights, you know, Latin America, um, Australia, Europe, all, all over the place. Um, so we, we've been doing a lot of that. And that's still something that's going on even this far into the, the pandemic. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you think about it, they're really, you know, certainly not during my, not during my lifetime. There's never been a global shutdown like what, like what we had. And so it was really all about getting Americans home and quite candidly getting, getting foreigners back to their home countries too. And that's an obligation that we take uh, or a commitment that we take very, very seriously. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. So on the cargo side, how, how important is cargo to the scheduled flights? I mean, I know you're running these cargo only flights, but when you're looking at what to bring back, is cargo an important piece of that right now? Absolutely. It, it really de-risks the equation. Uh, and so when we're, when we're looking at the scheduled flights, if you have, you know, a strong cargo market with, with really good yields on that, that de-risks the, the need for the passenger yields to be as strong as they historically have been. Because as you, as you know, they're not right now. Right. So safe to say that without cargo, you wouldn't be at the levels that you're planning right now? That is a very safe assessment. All right. Fair enough. I will say one thing. Passenger demand is increasing, right? So the way I look at it is cargo helps de-risk it. But then as we look out into the summer, so as we look in June, as we look in July, as we look in August, 
um, passenger demand is increasing. And so what's happening is maybe cargo yields are coming down a little bit because more capacity is being added on the market um, by ourselves and by all the airlines globally. But at the same time as that's happening, there's also more passenger demand. And so it's, it's kind of this nice transition from cargo, you know, helping de-risk and underwrite it to the passengers um, coming back. So are, are there certain geographies that are performing better than others? I, I assume that the UK has just taken a nosedive with a 14-day quarantine. But, um, you know, is there anything you can point to right now as bright spots or particularly bad spots? Uh, look, I think I think one thing to point out is hub-to-hub flying. Um, and, you know, I think that's a true statement for, for United as, as well as other airlines out there. If you look at where airlines are adding capacity – um, because of the ability to double connect. Again, going back to my example, um, you can connect you know, into one of our hubs and then connect from one of our partner hubs to a, to a beyond spoke um, that we may not have service to right now. And so what does this look like as we move forward? I, you know, obviously, uh, Newark Palermo is not operating this year, but is, is that something that's even on a medium term thing? Or do you think this is a longer rebuild process where those types of routes just aren't likely to come back for some time. Yeah, I think, look, I think this is going to take a little bit longer to, to come back. I think we have to rethink the way our, our network is laid out and built. Um, and maybe some of the things that worked in the past won't work in the future. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, but I'm, I'm, I will tell you, we are constantly evaluating new opportunities, places that we do not have service to. Um, today or did not have service to or even plan to um, in, in maybe, you know, pre-COVID-19. Um, so we're constantly thinking about how can United Airlines network evolve so that we can offer passenger service to these destinations. And what we really want to do is we have the ability to leverage our great hubs. I mean, if you think about our hub locations, they are the best, bar none. And so when you when you take a New York or a San Francisco or a Chicago um, you really these, – these are hubs that have a strong local market. They're hubs that have great uh, um, connectivity, great flow points. Um, and so they, they run – they do both of those, those functions. And because of that, that will enable us to bounce back faster internationally than other airlines. And that's going to enable us to look at our network differently um, and, and maybe add things that, that may surprise you. Well, oh, that's exciting. I want to hear more. Uh, <laughs> do you have examples of – not markets. I know you're not going to tell me that, but do do you have examples when you talk about how some things may not work now that worked before, uh, or vice versa? Um, you know, more broadly, and you don't have to commit to that actually being true that it won't or will not work. But do you have examples of things that you're looking at, things that might change the way that you're evaluating this? I, I do, but the problem is, you know, I know your your podcast is going to get a lot of listeners at American Airlines and Delta, and so <laughs> I'm not going to broadcast the markets that that we're thinking of doing. So stay well, stay tuned, but stay <laughs> tuned. But I, I look, I, I genuinely think, you know, for example, um, for example, um, we had a we had the largest network in in Asia Pacific and in China specifically, right? That may take a little bit longer to come back. And so as a result, our network might need to look a little bit different in that region, right? Equally, um, um, you know, the, the Palermo example that you used, right? That was that was a leisure oriented vacation route. And that might not make as much sense in the short term. Um, but there's going to be also a lot of demand in um, other parts of the world 
where business is shifting or uh, where where people want to go as other airlines around the world evolve and, and change the way they look. So we're always looking at new new opportunities. So you basically look at the Johns Hopkins map, see where there's no coronavirus, and that's where you. <laughs> It's a little more. It's a little more analytical than that, but uh, we, I have. Uh, I do have the the John Hopkins map uh, bookmarked on my uh, internet browser. Yeah, I don't doubt that. So, all right. Well, really quick before we go, I do want to talk a little bit about fleet. Um, you guys haven't really committed to fleet retirements or anything in the same way that maybe we've seen it uh, the other two big guys. Uh, but do you have a sense of what the future fleet looks like internationally at all? Yeah, look, I think I think our fleet, much like our hubs, is a massive advantage and, and a point of pride for us at United. And I think it goes back to, um, you know, where our, our hubs are located, right? And we had more wide bodies than our other two large U.S. carriers um, because of our hub locations, right? Um, and when you have these big coastal gateways, um, these are great jumping off points to other parts of the world. And so we're running all sorts of scenarios, Brett. We're we're looking at, you know, different retirement scenarios. We've, we've got a lot of aircraft parked right now. Um, and so what the key thing is, is flexibility for the future. And the key thing is working with our union leadership and our union partners um, to build a plan for the future that allows us to rebuild United Airlines when there is a bounce back. And there will be a bounce back, right? And so what we want to do is maintain a lot of flexibility um, so that we can return to a growth plan and we can return to doing all the great things that, uh, that we love doing. Um, and so, you know, on the fleet, we, we have a, we have a very, very flexible fleet. We've got, you know, five sevens and six sevens, which, which are a bit older, um, but are a much smaller gauge and that gives us flexibility. And then we have the, the eight seven family, everything from the dash eight all the way to the dash tens. That gives us from, you know, 240 seats roughly in our new configuration all the way up to 300, more than 300 seats on the, on the dash 10, right? And same with the triple sevens from 276 to 350. So we can cover all, you know, premium heavy markets, small markets, uh, where you need big gauge or little gauge. So I think we have a lot of flexibility. Um, and, and we're just waiting right now to really keep our powder dry. Um, but that does not mean that we're not running scenarios. We are always running scenarios. Uh, the team is constantly looking at that. And so we'll just wait another three weeks to a month and see what August looks like. And, and I assume you're going to be tackling this month by month. Is that how it's going to go? That's right. We're doing it month by month um, so that we can be flexible. When we see demand return, we will add the capacity. Um, what, what we're, we do not have um, hope as a strategy. We're looking at data. We're looking at demand. And when we see demand in the market, we are going to add the capacity back. And we can flip a switch and we can be gangbusters. All right. Well, that's a that's a more bullish uh, opinion than I would have expected. So that's encouraging. I think people will be happy to hear it. Thank you, Patrick, for taking the time to talk. And thank you once again to our sponsor, Ontario International Airport, ONT. As a reminder, with passenger throughput increasing faster than TSA CBP numbers, Ontario has prepared with a focus on creating a clean, easy experience for all guests. For more details, see flyontario.com slash COVID-19. Until next time, thanks for listening.